turn in your Bible, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter number 19. Exodus, chapter 19. And the subject today is God's purpose for His people. God's purpose for His people. And I hope you will listen to it carefully because I believe this is a message that God gave me. I worked all week long on a message. I don't usually tell you much about what I've been doing personally. You're not that concerned about that. But I worked all week on a message. I just never could get it to jail. I even sent it to Jane. She made up a PowerPoint for me. And I just, I just, uh, I was feeling the pressure Friday. I said, what am I going to speak on? This is just not going to get it. And um, Saturday morning, I was opening my Bible, doing my Bible reading, and suddenly I just said, ah, I found it. That's it. And it took me about three hours instead of the usual. And so I hope that maybe today the Lord gave me a message just for you. And I hope that you will listen. Exodus chapter 19, we stand here in respect to God's Word when we read it. So thank you for standing with me. And in your Bibles, Exodus 19, in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai. They had pitched in the wilderness. And so now they're out in the wilderness there. And Israel camped before the mount. Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and if you will keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Lo, I come unto you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Thank you, and you may be seated. The books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the inspired history of the nation of Israel. I'm careful standing in the pulpit to even use the word story because story has become such a broad term, and children hear the word story and they compare it to Hansel and Gretel or something like that. I want you to know this is more than a story. This is an historical account. The, this is inspired history. This is what God wrote. In fact, part of this, God wrote with his own finger, it says, part of Exodus here. This is the inspired 
accurate account of the history of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, as God forges them into a great nation. It begins with the account of the freeing of the Hebrew slaves down in Egypt after 430 years of slavery, their deliverance from the nation of Egypt, how they were led out into the wilderness, and for the next 40 years, imagine 40 years, God provided for them every single thing that they needed was given to them by the gracious hand of Almighty God. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with them getting ready to cross over into the promised land, the holy land. And so it's a long history here covering about a 40-year-plus period of time. I want you to notice with me, number one today, Israel's position in Egypt. They weren't even Israel when the book begins. It was the story of the Hebrew people. It was one family, the family of Jacob. And you remember they had gone down into Egypt when Joseph, one of their, one of his, Jacob's sons, had ended up taken into slavery and been promoted there and now was in charge of the food distribution. And so now they go down into Egypt because of the famine. They're out of food. They so desperately need uh, food, so they go there. And, of course, that generation dies off, and the next generation dies off. The Bible says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, meaning he didn't know the people, had no regard for them. In chapter 1 and verse 7, it says they multiplied so rapidly that they became a threat to the government itself. It was this minority group rapidly growing, and uh, Pharaoh is afraid that if they were to turn against him, they could defeat the whole nation. And so he makes them slaves. And for the next 430 years, they are nothing but slaves to the Egyptians. Generation after generation after generation. That would be six generations of 70 years, or be 14 or 15 generations if you bring it down to 30 years, which sometimes we consider that a generation. The Bible has almost nothing good to say about the nation of Egypt, about Egypt as a country. In fact, in the Bible, it's a type of the world. It represents the world. Every time it refers to Egypt or somebody going there, they go down to Egypt. And they not only go down geographically, they go down spiritually. It's always a picture of deterioration when you go to Egypt. It's the type of the world. It represents the world all through the Bible and almost every single time it's used. Egypt was a land of death. It still is. When you think of Egypt, rather, Egypt was a land of death. Even today, when you think of Egypt, you think of what? You think of the pyramids. It's a burial ground. You think of mummies. Everything about Egypt reminds us of death. It was a land of darkness. Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, the leader, the king, if you will, of Egypt, and Egypt is the world, so that represents Satan. He's a type of Satan, the ruler of this world. 
Egypt was a land of bondage. It was a land of abject slavery to the Hebrew people. It used up people. They were cruel beyond description. They cared nothing about human life. It was cheap. They cared nothing for it. They were unreasonable with their people. You remember they said to the Hebrew people, you're too idle, and so you have to go out and gather your own straw, but you still have to meet the same quota that you've had all along. So they cared nothing about people or, or, and their welfare. They were a land of bondage. Egypt, like the world, is a land of immorality. It's a land of sensuality. It was a land of unmentionable perversion. I told you a few weeks ago when I used some of these same scriptures, you, you look at the cave art that's four or 5,000 years old now in Egypt, and the archaeologists have gone down there and taken pictures of the art that's in the caves, and much of it at the time of Moses and, and the, the Hebrew slavery. And the cave art depicts these brute beasts, birds, reptiles, even flies, if you could imagine, and art on the walls of those caves grouped together in the most disgusting, perverse, immoral acts that, you can, that the human mind can conceive. It's a land of death. It was a land of bondage, picture of the world, a land of immorality, a land of idols. They worshiped the sun, and so one of the plagues was God made, brought darkness to the land. They worshiped uh, the Nile, and so God turned the Nile into blood. They worshiped flies, and so he sent a plague of flies that absolutely disgusted them. Can you imagine worshiping a God represented by a fly? This is how depraved and debauched they were. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, and verse number 14, we don't know that in the account in, we don't know in the account in Exodus that they had no longer worshiped God, but apparently somewhere along the line, they forgot the God of, of the, the, the true and living God, and they began to worship the gods of, of Egypt. In fact, in Joshua, Joshua says there, you forgot God and you serve the gods of Egypt, the gods of this world, that would indicate. And so you forgot the God that saved you, the God that has provided for you, and you worship these idols. Imagine God's people turning into idol worshipers. And so this was their position in Egypt, and they'd been like that for going on 500 years at the time that this is written, and God sends deliverance to them. Number two, note with me, though, Israel's supernatural deliverance. Their supernatural deliverance. Number one, their position. They're slaves in bondage in the land of death, in the land of sensuality and immorality, the land of idol worship. But now, number two, God, in God's timetable, He chooses to deliver them. And so He raised up a leader. And the leader was a man named Moses. Even today, in modern times, Moses is regarded as one of the greatest leaders in all of human history. If you study any books on leadership and they use examples, they're probably going to use Moses as one of the examples of a, of a man who exhibited tremendous leadership. 
Moses, as you know, was raised up in Pharaoh's palace after he was rescued as a little baby. The first 40 years of his life, he was trained in all the wisdom of Israel. The first 40 years of his life, he spent there learning everything that Egypt had to offer. And he was a member of the royal family, so he had great, great privilege there. And then, after 40 years, God sends him into the wilderness. And the next 40 years of his life, he is trained in the wisdom of God out in the wilderness. He's by himself out there with his flock. He now becomes a lowly shepherd, about the lowest form of occupation in the minds of an Egyptian. And here he is, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years on the backside of the desert. He lived to be 120. You can break his life into three 40-year segments, 40 years learning the wisdom of this world, 40 years learning the wisdom of God, 40 years leading the people of, of God into the promised land. And so this great man, this great leader, he strides into Pharaoh's office. He's 80 years old at the time. That's a good age. And so he strides into old Pharaoh's office, and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says to him, and who do you think you are? Do you know who you're talking to? I'm the Pharaoh. I am the leader. I'm the king of the superpower, the only superpower in the world at this time. And God then begins to work to change the heart of this rebellious man. And we find the story in brief over in the book of Hebrews. It's worth you turning there, Hebrews chapter 11. And you know now that that's the story of faithful people. You know that Hebrews 11 is God's hall of fame, we call it. And in Hebrews chapter number 11, we read the account of Moses here, beginning in verse number 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And here is a pivotal verse in all the Bible. Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Boy, underscore that verse in your Bible. He made a choice, an intentional decision. Rather than enjoy the luxuries and the pleasures of the nation of Egypt, I, and I'll only do that for a season, I'll only do that for a human lifetime, instead of that, I am going to follow the Lord. I'm going to take the path of hardship. I'm going to choose affliction over convenience and comfort. I am going to follow God. And it says in verse 26, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. What a powerful phrase, the reproach of Christ. And if you follow Christ, I can tell you there will be a certain reproach to that in this world even today. He esteemed or he weighed or he chose the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasures he could have in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, and he endured because he saw him who is invisible. He endured 
that next 40 years in the wilderness, that next 40 years of leading the people of God, he endured. He never quit because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible, the God of his fathers. And in verse number 28, through faith, he kept the Passover, which had never been done before. It took faith to do what the Lord required. And the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, which the Egyptians, as saying to do, they thought they could do the same, and they were and they were drowned in the sea, of course. This is, in brief, the little history, the little biography inspired of God and contained here in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, remember, the people had forgotten God. Along the line, they had abandoned God. In fact, every reference to God is not to my God. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I just have to stop, and for a minute, I just want to make a very brief application. Because you know what? In America today, so many have forgotten God. And the only thing they know about God is there's no personal relationship. He's the God of the past. He's the God of, you know, back there, generations in the past when they founded the nation. But you don't hear people talking about Him in a personal relationship so often. And so these people have forgotten God. And then God began to work to reestablish faith in their hearts that they would believe in Him. And so they leave at the night of the Passover. You know the story. They go out, and they come to the Red Sea. About that time, Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, we can't make it as a nation without these people. We're going to destroy our entire Egyptian economy. We've got to have this slave labor and he marshaled up his army, and he took out after them. The Red Sea in front of them. Greatest army in the world pressing down upon them from behind. What are they going to do? God comes through for them, and he opens up the sea. A miracle. You can't explain it any other way. Don't try to justify it. They walk through the Reed Sea that a wind blew and lowered the water and all this stuff that people try to do to justify their unbelief. The Bible says God opened it up and they walked through as if it were dry land. The whole nation, over a million people, two million people probably at this time or perhaps even more than that. And God then begins to supernaturally deliver them to the other side. Leading up to that, he had brought the ten plagues one after another, the gods of Egypt were shown to be weak and that the God of the Hebrews was the true God. He was the God of strength and He was mighty. Every plague was designed to show that God was superior to the gods that they worshiped through their idols there. And now they're delivered through the Red Sea. They're out of the bondage of slavery for the first time in over 400 years. Can you imagine the jubilation, the, the, the thrill, the celebration that was going on in their hearts? Free after 430 years of abject slavery. Now they're in the wilderness. And for the next 40 years, God supernaturally provides everything they need. 
They need water immediately. And so there's a rock, and that rock is a type of Christ. And out of that rock came water, again, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, the living water. And so God provided for their needs for water. He sent manna, a little substance that was sort of like a bread, reminding us of a type of Christ who is the bread of life. The Bible says even their shoes and their clothing didn't wear out for the next 40 years. Isn't that something? Wouldn't you like to wear the same dress, ladies, for 40 years? But it'd be okay if God was preserving it, I'm sure, wouldn't it? I imagine it looked fine. And so at any rate, every need that they had, God provided. He was forging them through working miracles and showing them he was the true God, taking people that were blood relatives of each other, taking people that had seen miracles, the same experiences that they had shared, and he forges them into a powerful, powerful people, a nation that as they went through that wilderness, they began to fight battles there, and God used them. They were a strong, strong people by the time they got to the other side there. Miracle after miracle to break them away from their idols, God always showing himself to be superior in power and in wisdom, in power and majesty, that it all belongs to God, that he can do anything, uh, things beyond the realm of our conception and our imagination. That's the purpose of the miracles. It always has been the purpose of miracles. People today want a miracle for every little personal thing, and you don't find that in the Bible. You find miracles in the Bible. God used miracles to show, to, to help people, obviously, to heal people that had dire need, to open up the sea and, and save the whole nation. But the, the primary reason God uses miracles is that we would believe in Him, that they, miracles would distinguish Him from all the other so-called gods of the world. None of them can work miracles. Only God can open up the Red Sea. Only Almighty God could drop down bread from heaven to feed two million people every day. Only the God of heaven could be the one who would provide water out of the rocks so that these people could, could drink as they went through one of the most barren places on all of the planet. There was a lot of complaining over those 40 years. Uh, after all, they were Baptists. And uh, lots of complaining going on through those years that they were out there in the wilderness. The reason is they said they missed the finer things of Egypt, things like the melons and the garlic. And uh, they talked about the food mostly, the garlic and the leeks and the melons. We missed that. And some of them even uh, stirred a, a rebellion. We want to go back to Egypt. We don't want to live out here in this barren place even though God is taking such good care of us. Somebody said it like this, that Moses got them out of Egypt, but he didn't quite get Egypt out of all of them. And you know, boy, isn't that applicable to our experience today? That people get saved and they, the Lord, uh, he redeems them. He gets them out of the world in that sense, but boy, he doesn't always get the world out of them. And that's the eternal battle that we face in our Christian lives today. So 
here they are. They've been moved from slavery, bondage, darkness, death. They've been moved now out into the wilderness. They've seen the hand of God over and over, miraculously providing everything that they need in their entire life. Boy, the things that they saw. And now we come to the third thing, their special purpose. Now, go back with me, if you will, to our text passage and look in your Bible again. Let me re-refresh your memory, okay? Exodus chapter 19 and verse number 5. And here God states His purpose for the nation of Israel. Exodus 19 and 5. Now, therefore, God said, if you will obey my voice. So the first thing is, is you've got to be obedient to the Lord, he says. And keep my covenant. Now, his covenant's going to begin here, and it's going to go through all oh, page after page of uh, the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible. He's going to tell them what he requires. He's going to tell them the lifestyle he wants them to live. He's going to tell them how they're to worship Every detail of their worship is laid out. The tabernacle, the priesthood, everything that God wants them, he puts it all here in his covenant in the pages ahead that we won't have time to go over. But he says to them, I want you to obey me now, and I want you to keep my covenant, and if you do, then, conditionally, you will be a peculiar treasure to me. Peculiar there is not weird. (laughs) You know, we know people that are peculiar, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people that are unique, people unlike the Egyptian world and culture that they came out of. If you will be obedient to me, verse 5, if you will keep my covenant, if you will be a unique people committed to me above all the people of the earth, and if you will do that, he says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. He said, I want to be the center of your life. You know what he did even to this degree of detail? When you get over into the book of um, Leviticus or Numbers, I guess, in the book of Numbers, God says, now here's how I want the nation to gather themselves and organize themselves. I want you to put the tabernacle the place where you worship me in the very center of the camp. And then over here on this side, I want you to put four tribes, or three tribes. And over here on this side, I want you to put three tribes. Over here, I want you to put three tribes. Over here, north, south, east, and west. But I want everybody to be where from every tent in Israel they can look and see the house of God. In other words, the house of God, the worship of God is the central point in your life. You don't organize your life around your occupation. You don't organize your life around your recreation. You organize your life around the house of God. It's central to everything you do. You're a kingdom of priests. So he said, obey me keep my covenant, be a unique people committed to me, a kingdom of priests, and then look in verse 6 again, a holy nation. Every other nation at that time was pagan. 
Every other nation on the earth at that time was grossly immoral, sensual, vile, given over to every kind of excess and sin that you can imagine, riddled with immorality. And God says, I want you to be different. You are to be characterized by your integrity, by your truth, by your moral purity. You're to not live like the rest of the world lives. Don't be influenced by them. You are my peculiar treasure. You are a kingdom of people who has God at the center of your life. You're holy people as I am a holy God. Look in verse 8. After the covenant was explained to them, all the people answered together, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses then went before the Lord and repeated the words of the people to God. Lord, I told them what you said you wanted from them, and they said, all that the Lord requires, we will do. We're going to do it. And so the covenant was made. A covenant, as you know, is a, is a formal binding agreement. And the people agreed to obey and to carry out the covenant of God. Now, let's make a few applications here. Open your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What is the relevancy of all that? Because I've given you a whole Jewish history lesson here, haven't I? But one that's inspired from the Scripture, one I think I pray will help you. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. And in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant of all the things that your fathers experienced out there when they were forming the nation. And we go down to verse number 6. Now, these things were our examples. Now, just stop and think about what I've said to you. These things are our examples to the intent that we should not lust or desire evil things as they lusted after evil things. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them. For it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do you remember when they were out there and Moses went up on the mountain and was going for 40 days and they said, well, he's never coming back? And Aaron took over? And Aaron said, well, we need to build a calf, a golden calf. Man, Aaron, second in command here, encourages them to return to their idolatry. And they build this calf, and they begin to dance and to sing and to play around it. And they worshiped one of the gods that they worshiped down in Egypt. The reason it was a calf is down in Egypt they worshiped the cattle. And so they quickly forgot God, some of the pe- many of the people. And so that's what he's referring to here. Now he says in verse number eight, neither let us commit fornication. And some of them committed, and God judged them and fell in one day three and 20,000. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. And you remember where the serpents came into the camp and bit the people, and they put the serpent on the pole, a type of the cross of Christ. And then neither murmur you 
as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them for examples. Put a market by that in your Bible. Everything in the Old Testament, you can in fact say, happened as an example unto us. Why do we have all these hundreds and hundreds of pages of um, history here and biography of famous men and women and all the stories of the Old Testament? They are for our examples. Don't look at your Old Testament and say, that doesn't have any relevancy today. I tell you, Exodus 19 is just as up-to-date as the morning newspaper here. It deals with the issues that are the very heart of human existence. And so he says, neither murmur you, verse 10. I think I've already read that, but I'll do it again. As some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer, and all of these things happened to them for examples, and they're written for our admonition, our admonition on the, upon whom the ends of the world are come. If you believe, as I do, that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the winding down of history, is near, if you believe it, verse 11 has special significance for you. It's written for the admonition of the people upon whom the ends of the world are come. And then he exhorts us, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And so he warns us against temptation. Boy, today, he says, these things were written for our, our examples. Well, don't we live in Egypt? Don't we live in Egypt? We sure do. The land of death. Where, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We live in a world of death. We see it every day. We live in a land of bondage. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, He that committeth sin is the slave of sin. You say, oh, it's just a little habit of mine. It's not a big deal. No. If you repetitively commit sins, Jesus said you are the slave of them. If there's a sin in your life that you practice, it has control over you. If you can quit it, why don't you? Like the guy told me one time years ago when a lot of people smoked, he said, ah, it's not hard to quit smoking. I've quit 20 times. You know, but he never really quit. He practiced it. If there's a sin that you practice, the Bible says you're a slave. I'm a slave to it. Just like they were the slaves to the Egyptians. We live in the land of wickedness. Well, you know, America, you know what America is now becoming known for around the world? Around the world, people are saying, America has fallen. America used to be the land of Christianity. Now America is the land of wickedness. It's the land of violence. It's the land of perversion. It's the land where our entertainment is so absolutely vile 
that it's, it's gained a reputation worldwide. America is the land of abortion, the loosest abortion laws in the whole world, still in many of our states. America is the land of idols. America is the land now where we look back and say, boy, God did this at Bunker Hill. God did this at Valley Forge. But we don't have much to say about what God's doing right now. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the past. But is he the God of today, right now, July 2023? The land of idols where we worship wealth and we worship power and we worship pleasure and we worship position. Not much has changed since Exodus chapter 19. When God was ready to deliver them, He gave them this this symbol of something that was going to happen in the future, this type, if you will. They call it the Passover. God said, I'm going to warn you, the angel's going to come through the nation at night, and the firstborn in every house that doesn't have the blood is is going to die. And Moses instructed the children of Israel, each of you take up a lamb four days before the event and look at that lamb, that it be a perfect lamb. Give God your best. And then you'll take the life of that lamb, you'll take the blood, and you'll put it in a basin. You'll take a piece of weed, a hyssop, and you'll dip it in the blood and put it on the side post of the door and on the top of the door. You'll form a cross. They didn't know the significance of that yet, but you'll form a cross. And it will look forward. It will be a type of the day that God will send His Son, the Lamb of God, who will come, and He will shed His blood and take away the sins of the whole world. And so everyone that did that was protected. They were saved by the blood. We don't have the Passover, we have the cross. But both of them represent the Lamb of God who died in our stead, substitutionary atonement. That we're delivered by the blood of the Lamb. And they were set free. And when we come to the cross, we're set free. We're forgiven of our sins. We're born into God's family. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us. Now, God had a purpose for Israel. The purpose didn't end at the Passover. And neither does the purpose of God for you end at the cross, at salvation. There's so many people in America who misunderstand the whole plan of God, the purpose of God. Their idea is, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm okay, forget forget everything else. Oh, no, no, no. The cross is not the end. The cross is the beginning. The cross is when you start the Christian life. The Passover is when they begun their exodus out of Egypt and their experiences with God. And so, just like Israel, God has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for you individually. He has a purpose for us as a church. He has a purpose for 
all the saved people across the whole planet, and it's the same purpose everywhere. And I'll show it to you lastly today, 1 Peter chapter number 2. Will you turn there quickly? And it ties right back to Egypt. Just like Israel, God had a covenant purpose for His people. God has a covenant purpose for His people today. 1 Peter chapter number 2, and I read in verse number 9, you, writing to Christians now, not the nation of Israel, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. A priest is one who can go to God. We are priests. A priest is one who the worship of God is central and priority in his life. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, Christians. Together we are a holy nation, unlike the people of the world. We are a peculiar people, and the word peculiar there in the Greek originally has the idea of purchased people. We're a purchased people, a people bought and purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the purpose he has for us is that we should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That my neighbors and my friends, that people who see me will see Jesus Christ. They'll see his character in me. And that the people of the Florence area will look at the people of the Florence Baptist Temple and we're a holy nation, they will see the whole church as a purchased people, different from the world around them, a called out people, a holy people. And I believe that was even God's purpose in raising up the nation of America. Certainly the founders talked about that. Now, look up here and follow me. I don't want you to miss this because I'm going to bring it all together. God's main purpose in everything he's doing is to create a bride for his son. That bride, the Bible says, is the church. The church is the bride of Christ. In Ephesians, God said, I want that bride to be spotless and without wrinkle. I want a perfect bride for my son. Now stop and think. If Jesus is the bridegroom, and Christians are the bride, he doesn't want to give his son, God doesn't want to give his son a wrinkled, dirty bride. He wants a bride that is perfect for his son. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, deserves a perfect bride, does he not? Not a dirty, wrinkled one who has no commitment to her husband. He wants a spotless bride. And that is the reward that God has. Listen to me. God wants to give his son a perfect bride as his reward for going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world. If we appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for us, in suffering and pouring out his blood for our sins, then we want to be that perfect bride. 
we want to please Him in all that we do. That is the driving force to be a purchased people, a holy people, a treasure unto God. That's our aim, our purpose, our mission, our aspiration today as Christians. Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.